0: Greetings. Welcome to Mind Matters News. I'm your neuro host, Robert J. Marks. We are visiting with Dr. Andrew Knox. Dr. Knox is a neurologist at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. Uh, Andrew, welcome.
1: Thanks so much.
0: We want to talk today about the so-called mind-brain problem. Sometimes it's called the mind-body problem. And it's been debated for centuries. And the question is, is the mind just a part of the brain? Is an emergent property of the brain? Is consciousness part of the brain? Or are there parts of the mind that are distinct from the brain? Now, there's two schools of thought in the extreme on this. There's the monist who believe that the mind is an emergent property of the brain. And then there's the dualist who believe that the mind is separate from the brain in some sense. There might be some overlap, but they, they, they're they certainly not distinct. I would wager that most theists are dualists. Uh, Descartes, for example, in talking about the mind-body problem, talked about the mind as the soul. And uh, Andrew, you have mentioned to me that you think that most neurologists are monists. Is that right? And if so, how
1: come? So I think there is, yeah, and a bent towards being a monist for A couple of reasons. One is, I think, you know, just from a worldview standpoint, you know, many of the people I've worked with in neurology seem to be of a naturalist bent. So the idea being that all there is, is the physical world. And I think that lends itself to the modest viewpoint of the um, mind-brain problem. The other practical reason is it sort of comes out of how the field of neurology developed. You know, we talked a little bit about strokes and how You look at a patient who has an injury to a particular part of the brain, and then you see that they lose a particular function. So neurology kind of has embedded into it this way of thinking that certain parts of the brain do certain things, um, are associated with certain functions. And it just sort of naturally leads to the idea that, okay, the physical substrate of the brain does this thing or that thing. And so probably it's responsible for all of how a person is. Does that make sense? Yeah,
0: it does. Okay, understood. So, wow, most of the neurologists are monists. You know, um, in, I, I, I helped write a biography of Walter Bradley with Bill Dembski, and Walter was in deposition one time, and he was questioned about the difference between a naturalist and a theist, in his, in his case, specifically a Christian, perspective. Mm-hmm. And he was asked the question from an ACLU lawyer who was a naturalist and atheist. He said, uh, uh, Dr. Bradley, are you a Christian? And he says, well, yes, I am. And he says, well, how as a Christian, can we trust you to come up with, with definitive disinterested uh, answers in the area of, of science? And he was, Walter was uh, testifying about science books in the state of Texas. It's a really big thing because mm-hmm. when a science book is adopted in the state of Texas, it's adopted in a number of, number of different states. Uh, Bradley's response was, I think, wonderful. He said, uh, I'm sorry, sir. I'm not the one with the problem. You're the one with the problem. You have, you have ensconced yourself in a small silo of expertise and belief, and everything that you come across must fit within this silo now I can accept things happening in a, in a natural way. He says, but from my perspective, it isn't the question of whether or not God did it. The question was how God did it. And I would say, sir, that I, am, I have a much broader perspective and can be much more objective than you are because you are constrained to this little silo of naturalism. I thought that was just a beautiful response and I think a very appropriate response for people that are are naturalists. And this is what you're saying of neurologists. They believe they're monists, so everything that they see has to be fit within this little silo of of naturalism. It's uh it's frustrating.
1: I mean, well, it's <clears throat> it's a good example. I we are all sort of we all like to think of ourselves as impartial or you know fair judges of things, but we're all constrained by the things we believe about the world. Sometimes those, you know, those uh, assumptions have practical implications for a question, sometimes they don't. But in this case, you know, if you are someone who thinks that there only is the physical world, then, you know, of course you're going to say there's it doesn't make any sense for there to be a brain and a soul, like two separate things. Yes. You, you're you sort of stuck believing that it has to come out of the physical activity of the of the brain itself, right? And, and, you know, to be fair, like someone who is a Christian has probably some of the same or you're bringing some of the same assumptions in and it affects how we think about the problem a little bit too. You know, if you're a Christian, you're told in the Bible that there is a soul and there is uh, the body and their different things. And so, you know, you can't help, but bring that into how you study these sorts of problems.
0: That's true. Everybody has their bias. I always say artificial intelligence without bias is like water without wet. (laughs) You, you, (laughs) you have to, you, you have to have some sort of, uh, uh, bias. But, uh, in my case, there's been a number of times when my mind has been changed. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think that that's one of the beautiful things about, um, about faith, and specifically Christianity, is that you can address any problem. There's nothing which is nothing which prohibits you from looking at anything. Well, you mentioned some things which happen in neurology um, that you think are problematic for the monist. And I'm wondering if you could uh, go through some of those from a neurologist's point of view.
1: Sure. Now, I think it's probably worth giving the disclaimer that I'm not sure that any of these things are like an absolute invalidation of the monist standpoint.
0: Would you say, however, they are evidence of dualism?
1: Yeah. They are problems for monism or things to consider.
0: Well, I, I, I love I love a quote by Stephen Hawking. He said, nothing in physics has ever proved. You just accumulate evidence. Nothing in <laughs> right. physics has ever proven. You just accumulate evidence. So this right. is evidence for dualism. Not a proof, yes. I, but evidence. But, okay, right.
1: And neurology is way worse than physics too, right? Like <laughs> yes. I mean, there there is plenty of unknown in both domains, but one of the things that draws some of us to neurology is just there's so little that's known um, that there, there's still a lot to be learned, which is fun. Um, but yeah, I always think it means you should also be cautious about making absolute assertions, um, as to how things are working.
0: You shouldn't make absolute conclusions about something. You're absolutely right. <laughs> okay, go ahead.
1: <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> okay. So let's start with epilepsy since that's sort of the area that I know best. Yes. Okay, so if you assume that the soul entirely comes out of the brain, or that the mind and the brain are the same thing, you would think that there would be, you know, if you remove enough of the brain, you'd expect to see substantial changes in a person. But we can, you can do fairly dramatic surgery affecting part of the brain and not see a change in how the person acts, or how they behave, or who they are. So we have some patients who have more severe kinds of epilepsy where seizures start up on one side of the brain and they can't be controlled. So there's a procedure you can do called a hemispherectomy um, where that entire half of the brain is removed.
0: They take out half of your brain?
1: So historically they took out literally half of the brain. Then they discovered there are a lot of complications that come with actually physically removing half of the brain. Okay. So they've shifted to disconnecting half of the brain. So they still take out a chunk of that brain. They remove, they disconnect the corpus callosum. They disconnect other motor pathways and that the physical brain still remains there, but it's not connected to anything else and not doing anything anymore.
0: Really? Okay.
1: Yeah. So even with removing half of the brain, the person doesn't seem to change. They might have, they will have some new deficits. So they won't be able to see half of the world on one side. Uh, They probably won't be able to move their arm on one side well. They won't be able to move their leg well. There can be some like subtle changes in cognitive function, like how they would do on an IQ test, but it's not a very dramatic change. So
0: their IQs would probably go down a little bit. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. They would.
1: Yeah. But it's not like they're a different person. Despite half of the brain being gone,
0: oh my goodness! One of the arguments that I've heard this is from a neurosurgeon, Michael Ignor, mm-hmm. who does um, he does operations. I, there's probably a fancy word for it. He calls it a split brain operation, where they yeah. go through and they they separate the left half of the brain hemisphere from the right half of the brain hemisphere in order to get rid of communications for an epileptic signal that starts on one side of the brain and goes to the other side of the brain. If you do if you do the uh, the slicing then that that communication path is disrupted now if we had a mind associated with the brain after that you essentially have two brains i think and uh, it's like you said in these well let's see a uh, word i learned from you hemispherectomy <laughs> yep. it's like in that where they re- remove part of your brain you're still you 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 still have you still have the same mind uh, if you will
1: right so that's maybe even better evidence that it's more complicated than just the physical substrate of the brain correlating directly to like who you are because like you said there aren't two yous those you don't see those people arguing with themselves or uh running into those sorts of problems
0: i do understand that they do have sometimes some psychological problems they have to overcome
1: yep it is true and there are there are some like uh symptoms you can expect to see right after surgery okay some of those get better. Sometimes there can be sort of strange things that happen. Some, you know, uh, an arm moving on one side of the body in a way that you don't expect or that you don't feel like you have total control over. But again, it's not like they're two separate people living in one brain.
0: So I, I think that that is very, very compelling. Now, are you familiar with the split brain operation? Do they totally do the split brain? There, there's still something common, isn't, it? isn't there? Isn't there still a pathway?
1: there are still connections yeah so the split brain operation uh more formally is called a corpus callosotomy the corpus callosum is the major connection between the two halves of the brain I there's see. still some small connections an uh, anterior and posterior commissure um and some frontal connections as well but i i think it's i wouldn't expect um those are mitigating a lot of a person's consciousness so all of that to say, I think your point holds true that the fact that you don't become two people with a corpus callosotomy is a problem for the uh, for the modest viewpoint.
0: Another one that you pointed out, which I agree, is evidence of that the mind is separate from the body or near-death experiences. You've been around a lot of patients that have had brain surgeries and have probably been anesthetized mm-hmm. maybe to the point of, uh, I don't know, I, I don't think that they're brain dead. Or maybe they are brain dead, and but they come back and they've had these incredible out-of-world experiences. Uh, tell yeah. me about your experiences and your thoughts about near-death experiences.
1: Well, yeah. So, you know, actually my experiences in that domain are relatively limited. There aren't too many I've had who have run into those sorts of experiences. But I understand that you have researched some of these things, right? Uh, working towards uh, putting something together, Yeah.
0: Oh yeah! In fact, I I think that it's just uh, just incredible evidence of something happening above and beyond the the brain. And there is this great book that I just read by Bruce Grayson. It was called After. And Bruce Grayson was a psychiatrist, and he got interested in near-death experiences. And he actually formed a society that studied them. He published mm-hmm. a lot in them. He had a journal, which he which he started on near-death experiences. And this is really interesting. If you go to amazon.com, they have a list of like tens and hundreds of books on near-death experiences. So yeah. it's something which has just become popular in the last, I don't know, decade or so. I think it's because of the medical capability of resurrecting these people after they are brain dead and body dead and having these, um, the, these out of body experiences. But Grayson points out, he says that 90% of the people that have these near death experiences believe that they are real. They are also life changing. They come out of this, uh, they come out of this situation, you know, totally, totally different people. Yeah, and he just he just finds this astonishing. So I don't know if anybody's interested in in near death experiences. Bruce Grayson's book is recommended. It's called After. Nice. a psychiatrist. He isn't a theist, and so his God, I don't know for some reason being a not being a theist gives people more credibility. I don't know if that's necessarily true, hmm. but but we use that a lot. If you want a more theist book, I think a great one is by uh, John Burke called Imagine Heaven. And he also has a sequence of videos on YouTube. And the sequence, the, the videos on YouTube are incredibly compelling. Because I tell you, you read about near-death experiences, that's one thing. You talk to the people who have experienced the near-death experiences, and it's totally different. You see their commitment, they begin to cry, they begin to break down. And a lot of people display wonderful wonderful experiences of kind of going to heaven, if you will. And that's what John Burke says that they do. Bruce Grayson doesn't say heaven, but it is it, it is kind of a uh, an afterlife experience. But the ones that are chilling are, are the ones that went to hell. Hmm. And you want to watch something that is just chilling, watch the John Burke um, interview with a guy that went to hell. And you see this guy; he breaks down. He just starts crying and sobbing when he relives this near-death experience. And you know that indeed these are these are real experiences in the sense that ninety percent of the people that have them say that they are real. Now, I actually asks asked a uh, one of your one, one of your colleagues uh, Tononi,
1: mm-hmm. yeah,
0: about near-death experiences. He said, "Well, you know, I can give you drugs like." Um, I don't think he mentioned it, but LSD or peyote mushrooms mm-hmm. or something like that, yeah. and you can experience something similar. But there's near-death experiences which are uh, documented, and it's more than one. Again, it is it isn't proof, but it's it, it's it's certainly evidence about these experiences that um, these near that, that the things that these near-death experience people go through. Uh, one of which is in more than one equation one one equation that's my engineer coming out more than more than one occasion that uh, somebody who has been blind since birth is able to see hmm. and I you know what the heck is happening there they talk about the there's this one uh story about a girl that didn't know what she was experiencing but finally she she saw herself on the operating table and she was able to identify, I think it was something she was wearing or his, her hair or something like that. And she says, oh, my goodness, I'm seeing for the first time in my life. There's other cases where people had out-of-body experiences. They could, uh, they could tell things that happened um, external uh, to the operating room. Mm-hmm. Uh, in one case, there were objects which were not visible at all from any, any perspective. And the person experienced them. In fact, Bruce Grayson, the, the way he got interested in near-death experiences was really fascinating. He said he was eating his, um, he was eating French fries or something like that. And he was putting ketchup on them and he had a beeper. So he's been in this area for 40 years. The guy's been doing near-death experiences for 40 years. So he uh-huh. his beeper went off and they used to call that beep epilepsy, <laughs> where, <laughs> where the beep went off and he jumped yeah. and, and he spilled ketchup on his tie. Well, he took his napkin and he dabbed it in a sheet of water and he he rubbed it and tried to get it off and uh, it couldn't go off. It turned out at the time he was treating, he was a psychiatrist now. He was treating a girl that had tried to commit suicide that was in a deep coma. And he began to talk to her sister, trying to tell her what was going on with her sister that tried to commit suicide. Well, the next day or in a couple of days, he met with a suicide victim and and they began to talk and the suicide victim who was in a coma said, yeah, I, uh, you know, I saw you and Grayson said, well, yeah, sure. You know, um, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm a big skeptic if I hear a single, a single anecdote, I'd like mm-hmm. to see a yeah. bunch of them in order to yep. accumulate evidence, but a, a single anecdote doesn't make it. Uh, but she says, yeah, I saw you talking to my sister and he thought, yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. Sa- she said, yeah, you were wearing a, a gray flannel suit and your, your tie had this red spot on it. Mm-hmm. So she was able to actually identify that, that red spot, not having seen her sister or, you know, talk to anybody else um, in terms of that uh, out-of-body experience, that near-death experience. And I don't know how those sort of experiences such as blind people seeing, such as identifying objects not visible anywhere, and these other things, uh, I don't see that how they could be induced by taking LSD or peyote mushrooms.
1: Right. I Yeah, I agree. I think that that is the most, if you're trying to argue for a dualist perspective, those sorts of stories are the most compelling from near-death experiences. Ones where People witness what happens while they are cardiac arrested or that sort of thing, and can reproduce those details. It's it's hard to explain how that would happen just from a monist viewpoint.
0: Yeah, exactly. And um, and when when pressed on this, most people kind of change the subjects. In other words, this is. This is not addressable. They think it's some sort of parlor trick or, or some sort of thing.
1: Yeah, but yeah. It, well, I mean, right. And, you know, to be fair, it's easy enough to say, oh, uh, maybe some of those stories have just been made up or people added those details. Yes. And, you know, I haven't talked directly to the people who have had these sorts of experiences, but, yeah, I don't know, I prefer to take them at face value at this point.
0: Yeah, but, uh, you know, talking, re- reading again, uh, Bruce Grayson's book called After, he has documented thousands of these near-death
1: experiences,
0: yeah. and he has a number of these unexplainable cases, which are, are documented. I mean, they're just—I don't know if they're chilling. They're a little bit chilling, but they're—they're they're also pretty compelling. I think they are. So, um, I guess I've—I have revealed myself as a dualist. Where are you at?
1: <laughs> um. So, where am I? I am a dualist as well. I'm perhaps a weaker dualist than some. There's certainly all sorts of ways that the brain and the mind are interrelated. I think I mentioned in passing, right? Like the you can't remove both temporal lobes because if you remove both temporal lobes, you can't form new memories. Yes. You know, yeah, I memory seems like something that's an important part of what the soul is or you know, the our, our mind or our spiritual self so again it, it strikes me as a way where the two certainly are closely linked together
0: Oh I don't think I don't think it's distinct I think that there is fuzzy overlap yeah but I, 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 I think I believe I think is in, in the area of what you say you think that uh, yeah there, there is kind of a compelling evidence that the mind is uh, not totally a part of the emergent property of the brain.
1: Right. So the question becomes, can you explain, is is the mind entirely dependent on the brain or can it exist apart from the brain? Or are there parts of the mind that are definitely distinct from the physical brain? Yes. And and I think that's probably true. I think that is true. Now, part of my reason for believing that actually comes more, I think, from my faith than what I know about neurology, if that makes sense. Okay,
0: well, let me let me ask you about that. You and I are both followers of Christ, and uh, yeah. you have some some thoughts on what uh, Scripture teaches your faith um, from the doctrine of resurrections. Uh, and you mentioned, yeah. I think, 1 Corinthians 15.
1: Yeah, that's right. So, you know, Paul is very clear um, that there is life beyond this one, um, and that if we if we follow Christ, uh, then we will, after we die, be resurrected and be given a new and glorified body. The implication there, too, is that we remain the same person, but with a new body. So that belief really requires that the mind somehow be separable from the physical substrate of the brain.
0: Right. If one is going to talk about things such as eternal life, right?
1: Right. If they were one and the same, then when the brain was gone, there wouldn't be any way to preserve the mind, preserve the person. But as Christians were told that will happen. So you're stuck saying at least that the two can be disentangled. Now I can I can sympathize with someone potentially who says, you know, all of what we experience as the mind comes about because of the physical substrate of the brain and then, God creates a new brain that somehow like starts at the same point, And then the mind comes out of that one. So some might argue that that's still some sort of in-between position between like dualism and monism or like some kind of soft monism, I guess.
0: Yeah.
1: And I can't work out like specifically which of those things is happening. Um, I think the thing I care the most about is um, saying that I I really don't agree with the hard sort of monism that. The mind is sort of, it's there, but it comes from the physical substrate, and it's kind of an illusion. And actually, everything you do is just determined by your physical brain, um, and you're sort of a prisoner to that. I reject that philosophy and teaching. I think there are all sorts of problems that come from that, and that it's not you know compatible with the Christian worldview.
0: One of the people that I learned from quite a bit, uh, Andrew, was Roger Penrose, mm-hmm. who is a naturalist. Yeah, who believes that the human brain and the computer can never be creative. He wrote an entire book called The Emperor's New Mind about this. Just a fascinating book. Yet uh, Penrose believes that there can still be a naturalistic explanation. And we're seeing this happening more and more now as people are beginning to talk about maybe there's something happening in the quantum realm. The idea of my book, "Non-Computable You," that I wrote, was that uh, that everything that a computer does is algorithmic. Yeah, and there are things that humans do which are non-algorithmic. They can't be decided. They can't be explained by step-by-step procedures. Yep. Penrose is actually the one where I got this idea from, even though he's a mm-hmm. naturalist. But he looked around and he said that, well, you know, that the only thing in this world that I can think of that is non-algorithmic that is still naturalistic is quantum mechanics. And he looked at the quantum world, which is non-algorithmic. The collapse of a wave function is totally non-algorithmic. And he says, I think that the secret to consciousness lies there. And then there's been other people which have come across and they talk about the idea of quantum quantum consciousness. However, uh, trying to review the material, I see no evidence of that this quantum Theory has any traction. Yeah, it isn't to say that it won't. But my point is, is that being being a theist and talking about my silo being outside, including naturalism, and also um, outside of naturalism, I do believe that maybe quantum quantum things may someday indeed prove or lend evidence to why we are conscious. We just don't. We just don't know yet. It could be, and we might never know.
1: Yeah, I. I mean, I think if you were a naturalist, you could probably make a good argument for a monistic worldview that didn't involve quantum behavior. But yeah, I I don't know either. You can argue sort of everything is a result of quantum mechanics, right?
0: Well, I guess yeah. If you drill down, <laughs> if you drill down deep enough, I suppose you can. Right. Uh, but of course, I I maintain. That uh, there are things which are non-algorithmic. I would talk about human emotions yeah, such yeah. as love, compassion, and the non-obvious ones are sentience, understanding, and creativity. Uh, properly defined, we have to we have to go through and we have to define what those are before we can talk about them. But uh, properly defined, yeah, they're not going to be creative. Uh, they're not going to be um, uh, sentient, and they're not going to understand what they're doing. Uh, and that's my contention and the entire. You know, focus my book. So but I believe that, you know, maybe there is something to the quantum. And then you have to ask the question. Um, let me ask you this, see what you think. There are there are organs which are grown in pigs, okay? Mm -hmm. They do like a pancreas, because the uh pig is very close to humans in some biological sense that I don't understand. And they asked the person that was growing the pancreas in the pig, hey, could you grow a brain in the pig, a human brain? Mm-hmm. And the answer was yes. And then the <laughs> the question is, if you grew a brain in a human pig, would there be any sort of things such as consciousness or uh, non-algorithmic things that it could do? I think that that is totally non-answerable now. I don't know, maybe you have some thoughts on it. but
1: uh, Yeah, I the closest... I've come to dealing with that question, I guess. Uh, so, you know, I'm interested in epilepsy from a research standpoint, too. Actually, um, a lot of what I do is computer modeling of seizures. Oh. Which ironically sort of, you know, assumes this correlation between the physical world and, you know, what people experience on a higher level brain um, or higher level mind function. Yes, um, but anyway, in thinking about different ways to study this, I talked briefly with um, some folks here who do research with um, brain organoids. What
0: What is a brain organoid?
1: So you basically take uh, certain kinds of cells from a person and you can induce them to turn into neurons. And then you can induce them to start um, following typical brain development patterns, you know, using some of the same techniques you would use to make like a pig pancreas or that sort of thing. So you have little clumps of brain tissue, basically, that grow in a dish. And so my question for them was, oh, cool, you have these shapes and they um, that are sort of organized layers of neurons and that sort of thing. Um, Do they have seizures or can you make them have seizures? And he kind of laughed and said, that's a great question. It's like, I don't really know. (laughs) So when you have a structure like that, like certainly they don't do normal sort of activities, and it's hard to understand whether they even like have typical abnormal brain activities you know common dysfunctions like seizures or or other problems
0: interesting
1: so those technologies are very interesting very very young shall we say
0: so what what are they using these brain organoids for are they using it to supplement missing brain tissue or something
1: no, no. I They're mo- used mostly for research at this point to better understand brain development and sort of the sequence of events that happens in neurons, and potentially to use, understand some kinds of disorders too.
0: In your crystal ball, do you think they will ever be used for that sort of purpose, for supplementing brain tissue?
1: Um. Not soon, okay. if ever.
0: That's that's a safe answer, Andrew. <laughs> yeah. Okay. okay. I
1: would say definitely not in the next five years.
0: Okay. Well, that's going to be really interesting.
1: And anything beyond five years, I'm really hesitant to say anything about.
0: Okay. I want to leave you with a neurological uh, uh, joke that I do with my kids around visitors. Uh, when my kids were like one and a half, this is totally off topic. Brand new, brand new topic. Okay. When they were about one, one and a half, they were just learning to talk. And uh, I, I would say, okay, come here, uh, Joshua. Okay, where, where's your nose? And he would point to his nose. I would say, good. And where, where's your lips? He would point to his lips. And your eyes, he'd point to the eyes. And then the ears. And then i say, where's your medulla oblongato?" <laughs> <laughs> and the reason that's so funny is medulla oblongata is just a funny word to say yeah it really is but i trained him to reach over and grab the b- bottom of the back of his neck nice. <laughs> he, t- he knew where the medulla oblongata was so my kids have grown up knowing a little bit about neurology from uh yeah. from what i trained them as kids
1: that's that's great. Yeah, that is.
0: where's your medulla oblongata? I don't think there. I don't think there is another organ in the body that has as funny a name as the medulla oblongata.
1: I agree with you.
0: Okay, well, Andrew, what what a joy to talk to you. Yeah, um,
1: actually, I have one other thing. Sure. Uh, just before we move on, that I wanted to uh, to mention. So you know, we sort of talked about how your worldview affects how you look at some of these problems, whether you're a dualist or a monist. Yes. I do think that despite some people's worldview though, there's maybe an implicit assumption or we naturally assume that people actually are dualists. So I think you see this when you see, so some of the most ardent um, monists are folks who also are arguing for one day we should be able to uh, transfer human consciousness into a computer. Oh
0: yes, can we upload ourselves?
1: Right. And, you know, you say, well, you make a different physical substrate and then move the same information over to this other system. But again, implicit in that is something that maybe monism isn't quite right, because how can you transfer, you know, the same person to a different thing if it's not entirely dependent on the physical substrate? Does that make sense? It
0: does. I have have a problem with it even on a more fundamental level. Uh, I think, and again, I learned this from a Nobel laureate, Roger Penrose, Mm -hmm. that there are parts of the brain and parts of our mind that are non-algorithmic. Yeah. If indeed that is the case, then when we upload ourselves to a computer, we can only upload the algorithmic part. Yep. We can't upload emotions. We can't upload the ability to be create or understand or be sentient or, or, or I believe, conscious. Um, mm-hmm. And so the, I think that if you took any person and you took away all of their non algorithmic traits, they would be pretty boring people. <laughs> so well, certainly I would be true. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that if we do a computer it can't be the computers of the type we use today. Yep. It would have to it would have to at least be one of these computers that was an organoid or something like that. Now you would do that. I have no idea. Right. Uh, so what what do you think? You you agree? Agreed.
1: Oh, I don't think that's anything people will ever be able to do. Yeah, beyond that I'm not exactly sure how to go about answering the question. Yeah, I think you know maybe we joke in neurology sometimes about uh, the idea of brain transplants as a solution to problems.
0: <laughs> okay. T- let me ask you, is that possible? No. Okay. It isn't Not impossible. currently. Could it
1: ever be possible? Uh, I, I don't know. There are a lot of things I don't know.
0: I, I could see that being a, a way of achieving immortality, maybe.
1: Yeah. That, right. So that raises all sorts of interesting ethical questions, if something like that even were possible. And, you know, if you could do that, maybe that would give other answers to the uh, mind-body problem. I my, my gut instinct is that that is never going to happen.
0: Oh, I'm just wondering at the connectivity problems. I have read about people that have proposed head transplants. And of course, mm-hmm. this is really ridiculous. I think they've done it on animals, but uh, currently the interface with the spine is so complicated that anytime you tried to do a head transplant on a human being that transplant recipient would be a quadriplegic right because yeah. you couldn't you couldn't connect the spinal cord you couldn't get the right. uh, the rest of the body to work so that doesn't seem to be a very good way of doing this
1: yeah probably not now is it possible that like someday you could find a way of doing that and then give growth factors that caused things in the Spine and brain to connect, and maybe you could, you know, have some twenty-year rehabilitation paradigm that would let you start to use things in the way you did before. Yeah, maybe I don't know, but I I think it's unlikely.
0: You know, it's interesting because I I maintain that nature and humans abhor a spiritual vacuum. Yeah, and if if you are a monist. You want to achieve immortality now. Us as Christians, we've known about immortality for a long time. Yep. Their answer for immortality is the upload of the brain. So, yeah, it's it's these two different, total different philosophies trying to achieve immortality in a different way.
1: Right. I agree with you. And again, I think it shows that really all of us have some sense that there is more to us than just our physical body. Yes. If you're a monist, you probably had to work to try to unlearn that at some point. But you know, the idea the the part of you that has intuition that that's true, you know, sort of still peaks out sometimes, and I think that's where a lot of the discussion about uploading yourself to a computer has come from. Yes. Okay.
0: Fascinating stuff. Andrew, this is this has been a great time. Um, I agree. I've, I've really enjoyed uh, uh, chatting with you. We have been visiting with uh, Dr. Andrew Knox. Uh, Dr. Knox is a pediatric neuro- neurologist at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. Thank you, Andrew. I had a lot of fun.
1: You're welcome.
0: Blessings. So until next time, be of good cheer.
1: This has been Mind Matters News with your host, Robert J. Marks. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert.
0: The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.